Good morning. My name is uh, Cliff Wallace, and I'm the assistant to the director of the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Museum uh, here in Yorba Linda. And on behalf of the director, I want to thank you for uh, coming to the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Museum today uh, for this exciting event. Uh, we're happy to have this very interesting presentation uh, by Rabbi uh, Mark Glickman, and we're holding it in Theater 37, which has been named after Richard Nixon, the 37th president of the United States. So that's, uh, that's why we're in here. So now I'd like to ask uh, Ari Katz to come up and introduce the program for today and to introduce our speaker. So Ari. Thank you. Of course, I want to thank uh, the Richard Nixon Library and Museum for hosting us today. Everyone, a round of applause for uh, the library. And uh, particularly, where's Ida? Ida? Ida, please clap for Ida. Ida was my connection here. Made it all happen. Thank you, Ida. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, CSP, or who I am, CSP stands for Community Scholar Program. Can you all hear? And. Uh, this is uh, the end of our 16th year of programs in Orange County. We have brought over 150 speakers, 500 programs. So if you missed a few, um, and this is your first program, that's a lot of programs you missed. But you can go to iTunes and type in OCCSP podcast, and we have over 200 programs that have been recorded for your enjoyment. Um, so I mentioned this is the end of our 16th year. This is also the end of our first year of CSP North. And many of you here today belong to communities in the north part of Orange County. I hope you have attended one or more of our programs. We're very happy to partner with Temple Beth Emet, Temple Beth Tikva, Temple Beth David, and Temple Beth Shalom uh, to bring programs like this to the community. We hope to do it again next year, and we hope you will support both CSP and CSP North. I also want to thank Jewish Federation and Family Services for their grant that made this year in CSP North possible, as well as um, our annual programs at CSP. So thank you, Jewish Federation Family Services, and um, also thank you, Jewish Community Foundation of Orange County, for their grant to CSP for this past year. Um, they are great partners, and we love working with the entire community. Um, a few quick things. One is uh, CSP upcoming programs. We had some handouts. We have Joey Weisenberg coming next Shabbat to our community. Uh, so look for program information about that on our emails. We have Judy Klitzner coming, Inside Outside Biblical Leaders and their Non-Jewish Mentors. She'll be here May 12th. We have Profe Dean Erwin Chemerinsky coming for a sixth annual Supreme Court Review, May 23rd, 2017, hosted by University Synagogue. I hope you will join us for those and many other programs. Before I do our official introduction of our speaker, I wanted to invite the men's club, men's club from Temple Beth Emet to come up to the stage and lead us in a special uh, memorial for Yom HaShoah. So if you are a member of the men's club, please join us up on stage, and we will do a 10-minute uh, ceremony. Please join us now. Be careful as you come up on either side of the dais. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Jim Levy. I'm the president of the uh, men's club of Orange County in Anaheim. 
and the members of Temple Beth Emmet Men's Club in Anaheim, together with Community Scholar Program North, want to thank the Nixon Presidential Library and Museum for this opportunity to remember and pay tribute to the six million Jews who were murdered during the Shoah. At this point in time, we would like to have our survivors come up where they will be lighting the candles and we will have readings as each candle is being lit. I'm sure you've heard these words before. The world will little note nor long remember what they say here, but it will never forget what they did here. President Lincoln spoke those words at Gettysburg. To a certain extent, these words could be applied to all of us here today at the Nixon Library. The world may not notice or remember what we say here, but we want to make sure that the world never forgets what they did there. Who are they? They are the people who thought so little of human life that they slaughtered six million Jews. The they is also the Jews who lived on even in the death camps. The stories of their heroism serve as an important inspiration to us today. The, carry they, the caring they exhibited as we light the memorial candles and make comments we should remember well, not just for ourselves, but for the human community. We welcome the living survivors, Connie Kaplan, Esther Prehar, Marion Rosenbloom, Norbert Rosenbloom, Arnold Rosenbloom, Arnold Landau, excuse me. And the last candle is going to be lit by a second generation survivor, Ruth Zukowski. Who's the reader here? With this candle of remembrance, we now vow to remember the struggles and suffering of the past. Hitler's goal was not to end life, but to wipe out its memory as well. If we forget those who perished, they die a second time. We will remember. With this candle of life, we vow to make the choice to live. As we remember the tyrants and people who would make our lives a curse, so may we strive to make it a blessing. We choose life. With this candle, we give thanks for the land of Israel. Give Our message is that the people of Israel live. We hope that our holy land stands for much more than physical survival alone. May it stand for justice, may it stand for hope, may it stand for peace.
With this candle, we reaffirm our commitment to the light of Torah. While others may try to act as if they were divine, let us continue our search for the understanding of our responsibilities in God's divine plan. May our lives reflect the values of our faith. Nations, like individuals, may be good or bad. May all nations of the earth learn from the horrors of the Holocaust and use our powers for good and for peace. May we heed the prophetic call. Lo yisagoyo goycherev, lo yilmedu od milchama. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, nor shall they learn war anymore. This is the candle of faith. May we remain faithful both to the memory of our ancestors and to the commandments of our God. May we retain fresh faith, I'm sorry, may we retain faith that one day our prayers will be answered, that war and suffering will disappear, that cruelty will be no more, that hatred and injustice will disappear from the face of the earth. May we live up to the memories of the martyrs of the Holocaust and so many others who face darkness in past generations, who face the darkness with the light of faith. As we light these candles, let us dedicate ourselves to lives of action. May we never forget the lives of the Jewish men, women, and children who are symbolized by these flames. I would add a, a personal note. My parents were Holocaust survivors. My wife's parents were Holocaust survivors. Uh, she and I are both, as they call, second generation. Our children are third generation. And we're blessed to have with us the continuation of our faith. Our fourth generation continues on here. Thank you. And finally, we want all of us to vow that the sacred memory of our survivors for their suffering and the deaths of others in the camp shall never be scorned or erased. Thank you. Our speaker this morning, Rabbi Mark Glickman, was ordained at the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in 1990. He is rabbi of Temple B'nai Tikva in Calgary, Alberta, where it gets very cold in the winter. He's happy to be here right now, storing up some sunlight and warmth. He writes a regular religion column for the Seattle Times and has been featured in many other books and journals. His book on the Cairo Geniza, which many of you have read, has been featured on public radio internationals of the world. The, Jew the Jewish Daily Forward, and elsewhere. On January 1st, 2000, the Tacoma News Tribune named Rabbi Glickman one of the 20 people to watch for the century. So with that introduction, please join me in welcoming Rabbi Glickman. Today's program, Stolen Words. Don't applaud yet. You, you don't know what I'm going to say. 
what a delight it is to be here this morning. Thank you, Ari, for that introduction, and thank you for making it possible for me to be here. Thank you to the Nixon Library as well, and thank you, thank you to the Men's Club of the Temple Beth Emmett for, the, for that beautiful way of setting our tone for this morning and our commemoration of Yom HaShoah. The story that I'm going to be te uh, telling you to today is a difficult one to tell on, on Yom HaShoah, ironically, perhaps. And that is because Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Memorial Day, is a, a commemoration, of course, of the story of the Holocaust, of the deep, dark, unspeakably dark tragedy of the Holocaust. And uh, the, the tragedy of the Holocaust, of course, is the, the story of the deaths of so many millions of innocent men and women and children. This, however, is a story about books, just books. In comparison to the loss of life of the Holocaust, of course, there, there, there is no comparison, and to make, to make one would be highly inappropriate. And yet, Heinrich Heine once said that where people burn books, they will, in the end, burn people as well. We, uh, we look at the story of, of the books of the Holocaust, and in so doing, we're going to, to see that the, this story can, 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 can lay as a, as, as a faint watermark over the, the story, the tragedy of the Holocaust, and an eerily parallel one in, in, as well. And we're, we're going to see some of the parallels between the story of the Holocaust and the story of the books that the, the Nazis looted during the Holocaust. Now, what did the Nazis do with the books that they took from Jewish families and institutions during the years of their reign? Burn them. Well, that's what I thought too. But it turns out, while that's true, it is only a little true. And in order to understand the story of the books of the Holocaust, we could enter the story in any of, of uh, a countless number of places. I'd like to enter it after the war, actually, after the downfall of the Nazi regime, on a snowy day in February 1946 in Frankfurt, Germany. On that day, there landed in Frankfurt this man, Captain Seymour Pomeranz, an Orthodox Jewish archivist who was working for the army and was told that there was some Jewish material that had been recovered after the war in a warehouse near Frankfurt that needed uh, some processing. So he landed in Frankfurt. It was a blizzardy, snowy day. He was picked up at the airport by Lieutenant Leslie Post, who had been in charge of this effort until Pomerantz's arrival. And on their way through the bombed-out remains of Frankfurt, through the, the past the bomb craters and the, the bullet-riddled buildings through, that they could see through the blizzard, Leslie Post uh, said that there had been some material that had been ga gathered in Offenbach, a small suburb ju just across uh, the Main River from Frankfurt. They drove across the, the, the mine into Offenbach, and they came to a five-story warehouse, which ironically had been owned before the war by the IG Farben Chemical Company, a chemical company that made, among other things, some of the component parts for Zyklon B gas that was used in the gas chambers of Nazi Europe. Here, this warehouse that they used to own is being used to store Jewish material. Seymour Pomerantz got out of, out of his vehicle in the parking lot, and he may have had a glimpse uh, on his way in of what lie on the other side of the door. And, and yet, when he walked through that door, he couldn't believe what he saw. Because there, in this large warehouse, even on the first floor, he encountered millions of books. There in front of him was the, one of the, were, were the lost remains of, 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 of a recently destroyed 
culture, Jewish culture throughout Europe, books from everywhere in Europe. It turns out there were all kinds of books. There were Jewish books. There were trashy novels. There were children's activity books. There were, there were school books of all kinds, books that had been owned by and written by Jews and that had been taken by the Nazis through the war. He was astounded. He didn't even know where to begin. He, too, was aware that the Nazis had burned books. But it turns out that the book burnings only, took, only lasted, for the most part, for about a three-week period in May 1933, just after Hitler came to power. These were blazing uh, 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 ceremonies to the, um, to the, with, with, uh, with, with uh, fire chants and with propagandistic speeches, uh, a way for Hitler and his henchmen to help get their toehold in the symbolic imagination of the German, of the German people. But it turns out that the book burnings didn't do what the Nazis had hoped they would do. The Nazis hoped that these would enchant the, Jew, the German people with the superiority and with the, the magic and the allure of the, of the Nazi promise for racial superiority. Instead, the, books, the book burning ceremonies, well, they kind of fizzled. First of all, May 1933 was a somewhat rainy month in Germany, so they very literally fizzled in some ways. Um, books are hard to burn, it turns out. Books burn much more like logs than they do like kindling. It is hard to get a book with its tight-packed pages to catch fire. And of course, figuratively, it is hard to burn a book in the age and era of printing because if you burn one copy of a book, you, chances are there are countless others in other places, places just waiting for other people to read them and to republish them. On top of that, these ceremonies got the Nazis some horrible press on the world stage. They were not seen as this racially superior, uh, wonderful uh, regime, but rather as a regime of brutes and oafs and thugs. Uh, there were authors whose books had been blacklisted who's, uh, to be collected to be put into these fires. There were other authors around the world who were complaining of being whitelisted of not having made it onto the list of forbidden books, which for them would, would have been a badge of pride. One of the forbidden authors was Helen Keller, and uh, she said something to the effect of, you are fools if you think that you can destroy knowledge with a, bon a bonfire. Plus, they were, the Germans were looking forward to a big event that was going to be taking place in Germany in 1936, namely... The Olympics were coming, and they, they couldn't very well have these book burnings in the international media sh showing them for the people that they really were. And so very quickly, after a few weeks, the book burnings went away. They, there was a, a short-lived resurgence of them during Kristallnacht in 1938, but, for, but even for all of the press that they got and all of the media that they got and all the pictures that we have, uh, they, only la la they only lasted for a short time. Um, uh, the, 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 the major emphasis, the, ma the, ma the major agenda for the Nazis, for the way the Nazis were going to deal with Jewish books was articulated by a Nazi, a high-ranking Nazi official with an unlikely name for a Nazi official, Alfred Rosenberg. Alfred Rosenberg was one of Hitler's main ideologues he was, uh, he, he, he was a, a scholar, maybe I should put scholar in quotes, because he wrote a lot of, of, of material, but it was all but impenetrable to all but the most diligent of students. He wrote a big, thick, 
seven or 800 page tome called The Myth of the 20th Century, in which he talked about how the Jews were, uh, were a, a threat and, a, and uh, to the racial purity and the racial superiority of the German people. It was second in sales throughout Germ Germany, second in sales only to another uh, book written by a high-ranking Nazi official, namely Mein Kampf. This book, was again, it was impenetrable. It, it sat on a lot of people's shelves, but if you would open up a typical copy of it, you would hear the binding crackle because nobody typically read the thing. It was, it was do you remember when um, A Brief History of Time came out by Stephen Hawking? Very popular book. A lot of people had it. Very few people really understood what it meant. And that was the similar thing with the myth of the 20th, 20th century. Uh, Rosenberg was not only a scholar, he was also put in charge as the, the Nazi, as Nazi territory expanded eastward. He was put in charge of all of the Nazi um, territories in the east. And he was always trying to get into Hitler's good graces. He was not quite in Hitler's innermost circle. He was just outside of it, always trying to get in. Now, Hitler from early on had dreamed of establishing a Hochschule, a higher institute for study that would exemplify the greatest in Nazi and German scholarship, the, the greatest in, in, in intellect that the, the, German, the German civilization had to offer. And at one point in the late 30s, Rosenberg went to Hitler and said, you know what, if we're going to start the Hochschule, why don't we start the plans now? Why don't we start to do it now? It might not be built until after the war, but let's get things going and put an infrastructure into place. And as part of the Hochschule, why don't we have an institute for Jewish study, an institute for Jewish research? In fact, let's have a series of, of them. Let's establish 10 institutes for Jewish research around Germ Germany. And after the war, these institutes will be devoted to the, stu to the study of the soon-to-be-extinct Jewish people. Of course, other European and American institutions, they study the long-gone Egyptian cultures and the long-gone cultures of other peoples throughout the world. We will have vanquished this Jewish people. It is up to us to, to teach what this race really stood for and why they reached their, 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 uh, their, the end of their, of their days. Let me start a series of Jewish research institutes. And you know what, he said, if I'm going to have research institutes, we're going to need libraries in those institutes. And if we're going to have libraries in those institutes, I'm going to need some books. Why don't you let me gather some books? Now, it's interesting because Rosenberg represented a cadre of, uh, of people that represent a largely unknown chapter in Holocaust history. And, and these are, are scholars within the Nazi regime Scholars of Jewish studies. Rosenberg studied some about Judaism, not a whole lot. There were others who had PhDs in Jewish studies. Some of them, we'll see later, actually went to Hebrew University in Jerusalem and studied Talmud and other forms, other areas of Judaic studies there before the war. Uh, the famous Adolf Eichmann actually went for a short time to Palestine before the war in order to uh, to, to learn about Judaism. And these were people who were trying to add a scholarly veneer to the, the anti-Semitic, ra racist, murderous tendencies of the Nazi regime. They tried to make it look civilized. German scholarship was always, at the, up until that point, at the forefront of, of, of the world of, 
of letters in the West. There, there were great scholars and authors, and not to mention composers and artists throughout Germany, and they were trying to put a scholarly imprimatur on the, the Nazis' thuggish, thuggish agenda. And this effort to create these libraries was part of that, uh, that effort. So uh, uh, Rosenberg was given permission by Hitler to gather some Jewish books. And shortly after that, the Nazis invaded France. And, and throughout France, there were these beautiful chateaus. Chateau, is that the plural chateau? Uh, chateau with an X at the end. These beautiful big homes uh, uh, that, that, that wealthy Jews had ab abandoned. It would, and some of them had wonderful libraries of antiquarian Jewish books. Those libraries were immediately nationalized. There were other community libraries. The only Lancy Israelite Universelle, the, 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 the great French uh, libra library, in, Jewish library in Paris, was, na na was nationalized. And they began to collect these books. In time, the, uh, Rosenberg's efforts were formalized into uh, an organization called, in, in order to study Nazi history, German history, you need to become adept at multisyllabic words, I found out. The Einsatzstab Reichsleiter Rosenberg, the Reichsleiter Rosenberg ta Task Force. And typically, as the Nazis would go and take over towns, particularly as they moved east, they would empty the, the town of Jews, they would round the Jews up and either take them out into the forest beside that town to be shot and killed immediately, or they would ship them off to ghettos and later to the, de the death camps of Nazi Europe. And then the Einsatzstab Reichsleiter Rosenberg ta uh, guys, which we, we will affectionately call ERR from now on, the ERR guys would go in and they would take the books and they would send, send them to collecting points throughout Europe. They collected them in, in castles. Uh, they collected them in, mon mon in monasteries. They collected them in other places. Another man who was involved in, sim in, similar pro in a similar process was Reinhard Heydrich, who uh, was one who was, late, was murdered during the war, actually. But he, uh, he unified all the German police organizations into, and how's this for a... Uh, uh, for a multisyllabic word, the Reichsicher Heizdamptamt. Uh, it took me a long time to learn how to pronounce that word. The Reich Security Main Office, which we'll call the RSHA. And together, the ERR uh, and the RSHA, uh, as well as several other organizations, began collecting books throughout Europe. They would go to the homes of wealthy Jewish individuals, they would go to abandoned synagogues and abandoned Basem. Batei Midrash, houses of study. They would go to community libraries as well, and they began collecting this material. The Nazi regime was a very chaotic one. Hitler was a master orator, but not a very good organizer. And he didn't want to be bothered when his underlings were uh, conflicting with one another. And uh, it made for a chaotic administration. And many of these organizations were trying to outdo each other to earn, or to, to earn cred with the Fuhrer by collecting more books than their competitors. And so this orgy of looting began. They would go into the, these towns and they would take over the books. And 
know it doesn't work well here. Uh, so, so here you see a picture of the Einsatzstab Reichsleiter Rosenberg, the ERR guys, going into to a town. They, they would collect the books and they sent them to places like this, the von Pless Castle in Poland, and to the Torka Castle, also in Poland, and even to the Neuschwanstein Castle, which was the model for a castle not far from where we are here. It was the model for the Disney uh, uh, Castle as well. They, they stored mainly art there, but some books as, as well. Uh, uh, as the war went on, then as the borders of the Nazi territories began to shrink, they began to have to consolidate their holdings. And so what they did in Eastern Europe, they did, the, the various looting organizations sent much of the material to uh, Radibor, to, to a town in Poland called Radibor. Here you see the old church where a lot of the material was being stored, but it wasn't only in the church where they stored this material. This ended up being an entire town whose every public building, the bank, the movie theater, all the others, were used to store the looted remains of, of European Jewish civilization. Sim similarly, there was another town in Germany Hungen, here's the castle in Hungen, Schloss Hungen, and it too had every public building taken over as a, as a storage depot for this material. And so, like stardust swirling around the black hole, all of the books of, of uh, European Jewish civilization began to gather, particularly in these two places. There were countless others as well, but these were the two biggest. Um, and so you have a picture here of, 19, of what the Nazis were doing to books in 1933, uh, this very, uh, what we now see as a thuggish, boorish effort to destroy this literature, being transformed within a decade to, to uh, an image like this in 1943, Nazi officials going through piles of books trying to organize them. The efforts to organize them, by the way, were not very successful, only a few, in a few places were they organized because the sheer volume, the sheer quantity of material that came in beggared any effort to, uh, to, to organize it. So, so typically, you remember the picture in the warehouse at Offenbach, that's how the material was stored, just in big, huge piles, chaotic piles of books of all kinds that, it, that it had belonged to, to German Jewry, to European Jewry before the war. Now, it's important to note that not all books went willingly to their new Nazi captors. And there are countless efforts uh, throughout Europe of, of, on the part of Jews and other people to protect Jewish books from the Nazis. And perhaps one of the most moving examples is in Vilna, now Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania, which was a huge cultural hub. Not only Vilna itself, but many outlying communities. There, there were all kinds of libraries and, and uh, uh, there was Jewish theater and Jewish dance troops. And it was a magnificent Jewish hub before the war. When the Nazis took over Lithuania, they sent all the material, oh, I should say there were, there were a couple of libraries in Vilna, the Strachun Library, a magnificent uh, uh, institution, ended up in the walls of the ghetto once the Vilna ghetto was established. But there was also another significant library, uh, YIVO, the Yiddish or Jewish Scientific Institute. It now is headquartered in New York, which is where they moved it after the war. At this point, it was a, a bustling center of Jewish study of all kinds that was trying to document the history of Eastern European Jew Jew uh, Jewry. That was located outside the walls of the ghetto. 
as the Nazis took over Vilna and Lithuania, and the, they, sent, they took all the material that they, loot, loot, they looted from Vilna and the surrounding areas. They first sent it to the University of Vilna, but they ran out of room there. And then they reasoned, you know, a lot of this material that we're looting is already in YIVO. So how about if we just send all the material there and we'll, pro we'll, we'll process it at what had been the YIVO headquarters? Uh, the person in charge of that effort was a man named Johannes Pohl. He was one of these scholars who had studied at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem before the war. He knew something about Judaism. And what he did is he conscripted a group of literati from the Vilna ghetto, poets, scholars, historians, librarians, to assist him in sorting through this material. And every day he would parade this group of a couple dozen scholars out of the ghetto to the YIVO library, where they were told to go through this material and identify the most valuable 20% of it. That would be the material that would be kept. The other material, there was just so much of it, they would have to pulp it. And so you had the, these scholars sitting in YIVO, this place where they had studied themselves before the war, this institution that they had loved before the war, sorting through these books. And with each book, they had a choice to make. Either you give it to the Nazis or you destroy it. It was a, it, it a no-win situation, to say the least. And sometimes, neither option was one that they could stomach. And what they began to do, these literati, is they would take the, the, the most valuable material that they could find, and they would hide it in their clothing and sneak it back with them into the ghetto at, uh, at the end of the, the day to hide in burial places and other other hiding places in the ghetto for safekeeping in the hope that they could keep it there until after the war. And so at the end of the day, you had the, these, these ghetto inmates walking out of YIVO with their clothing just bulging from all the books that were under it, at great peril to their own lives, by the way, trying to make their way back into the ghetto to hide this material. They called themselves the Paper Brigade. It turns out that that process ended up going far too slowly. And so eventually what they started to do was to distract the guard at YIVO during lunchtime, during which time they would hide material in the, above the, the, the ceiling tiles in the, in, the, uh, in the YIVO building and in the walls, hoping that they could go back there after the war and reclaim the material. Um, two of the, of the leaders of this effort were uh, these two people, Avraham Sutskever, well, they were both poets, Avraham Sutskever and Shmerka Kezerjinsky. Uh, uh, Sutskever actually, at certain times in the day when he would have a break and wasn't hiding books, he would actually take out pen and paper and write poetry right there in Yivo, and we still have some of this poetry. Sadly, after the war, Shmerka Kezerjinsky and Avraham Sutskever were the only survivors of the paper brigade. They went back to uh, Vilna after the war and found that the YIVO headquarters had been bombed, only a small amount of the material was salvageable, and as had many of the, the hiding places in the ghetto itself. They were able to save some of the material, but not much of it. That which they were able to save was sent to the newly re relocated headquarters of YIVO in New, in New York, where it can be found today. Uh, Sutskever lived until 2010. He was over 100 years old when he died. Uh, uh, sadly, Shmerka Kazerjinsky was killed in a plane crash in Argentina in the 1950s. Uh, but you had, in the work of the paper brigade, you had this, remember I said earlier that there was an 
eerie parallel between the story of the books and the story of the people in the Holocaust. Here you have the books being rousted out of their hiding places, sent to a central gathering place, being inspected by an official, giving a, given a cursory inspection by an official. Some went one way, some went the other way, and determined, depending on which way the book went, would that determine whether it would be destroyed immediately or whether it had at least a slim chance of survival. That's just what happened with the people. Um, there were other books as well. What, what happened? Can I have some help there? Somebody going up? There we go. Uh, there were other books as well that were re rescued. This is the famous Sarajevo Haggadah. This is actually a picture of a facsimile edition of the Sarajevo Haggadah, a beautiful, illuminated Passover Haggadah that was made in Spain in the 13th century, and by this point was in Sarajevo, hence the name, the Sarajevo Haggadah. It was in the Bosnian National Museum. And when the Nazis went into, into Sarajevo and took it all over, shortly after that, a Nazi official went to speak with the director of the museum. The director of the museum didn't speak uh, German, and the uh, Nazi official didn't, didn't speak any of the local languages. So the, uh, the director of the museum turned to this man, Dervish Korkut, a, a young scholar who worked at the museum to, to interpret, to serve as the interpreter between the Nazi official and the museum director. And this Nazi official walked in with his shiny black shoes and his crisply pressed un uniform, and he said, after some opening pleasantries, he said, I've come to get the Sarajevo Haggadah. The museum director said, well, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't give it to you. He's, one of your colleagues came just the, this morning, and he asked for it, and I gave it to him. And the, the official said, who was that? I said, well, I didn't really think it was appropriate for me to ask his name, but he took the Haggadah. And this is all through the, the translation of Dervish Korkut. And so the Nazi official eventually nodded his head, and as I imagined it, he kind of clicked his heels together and briskly walked off, not realizing that during that entire conversation, the famous Sarajevo Haggadah had been in Dervish Korkut's pants. Right before, just moments before the Nazi official showed up, Korkut knew he was com coming and put this ruse together with the, the museum director in order to hide this Haggadah. Korkut was able, he was a, a Muslim scholar, he was able to hide the Haggadah, keeping it safe until the end of the war, and it is still in Sarajevo today. Uh, uh, shortly after this, uh, Korkut was introduced to a bedraggled young woman and her daughter who had just come out of the woods, a Jewish woman. They were star starving and needing shelter, and Korkut and his wife hid them in their home as well. So he not only saved books, but very heroically, at great peril to his own life, saved Jews as well. These two people were German-born uh, authors and, il and illustrators who had met actually in Brazil, Hans Augusto Reiersbach and Margaret Reiersbach. They got married, they took their honeymoon in Paris, and they were enchanted by the city, as many people are, and they stayed. And they stayed there until shortly before the Nazi invasion, just a couple days before. They knew the Nazis were going to invade. They cobbled together a couple of bicycles, and they rode out of town. Now, at that point in their lives, they had been working 
on some children's books. There was a monkey called Fifi who would get into all kinds of trouble. And they made the, the drawings and the preliminary text for, these, the, for a book about Fifi. And they put it on the back of their, their bicycles. They, they had to hide it in their packs because they knew that if the Nazis came across some Jews with any kind of literature, it would be looted. They rode their bicycles out of Paris, eventually made their way into Spain and Portugal, then back to Brazil and to the United States. When they got to the United States, they changed their names from their very German-sounding last names. No longer were they Hans Augusto and Margaret Reiersbach. They instead became H.A. and Margaret Ray, and they published the Fifi books under a different name that you may be familiar with, because Fifi was Curious George. Curious George was among the, the books that were snuck out from under Nazi hands, uh, snuck, snuck out, of, out of Nazi Europe from, from, uh, from under their, under their grub, grub, grubbing hands. Um, mm. Now, at the, when the war ended, the, uh, the, the Allied forces came across these hiding places all over Europe. The two biggest ones were in Radibor and Hungen. As a matter of fact, in Hungen, uh, when the, the, the Allies showed up, they assigned a, a, a young lieutenant, lieutenant named Robert Schoenfeld to, uh, they assigned him a detail of soldiers and uh, uh, told him, ordered him to go and check out the material at Schloss Hungen. Robert Schoenfeld was an, had been an attorney in Vilna before the war and he had to flee, he fled to the United States swearing that he wouldn't ever go back to Europe again. But when the American army after the war began learned that this young Jew, Jewish, uh, he was a a businessman in New York, when, when they learned that he spoke six European languages, the first, well, before he knew it, he was back on a boat towards Europe. He knocked on the door of this castle and learned quickly the, a little bit of the, the history of the, the, this place. The castle was owned by, uh, by Princess uh, Solms Braunfels. A, a European princess whom it was learned had tried to protect Jews during the war, so she had to flee. But for some reason, her husband was able to stay in the castle, all alone with, uh, with Alfred the butler. It was really a butler named Alfred. Um, and uh, her husband was a man, a Scottish portrait painter named James Pitcairn Knowles an octogenarian, as was Alfred the butler. And the two of these, 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 these men, by the end of the war, were living alone in this house. And it is said that they used to um, host teas in the courtyard of this castle as the bombs were exploding around outside the castle. It was in almost a Fellini-esque sort of a scene. They would host teas for Swedish diplomats and other friends of theirs in the court, courtyard of this castle during the closing days of the war. Schoenfeld and his soldiers walk, walked up to this castle. They knocked on the door. The door opened. There stands Alfred the butler. A word about Alfred the butler, by the way. Alfred the butler, his name was Alfred Thysinger. He had been in the service industry for many years. And actually, uh, it is good that he was able to get to his second job in the service industry because his first job had been 30-some-odd years earlier. He was a cabin steward on the Titanic. He was the one that knocked on the doors and told all the rich people it was time to get up uh, to, to, the, to the decks and get in the lifeboats now. He was that, that guy. Now he's an old man 
living in this castle. They opened the door, Alfred the butler nods as if he had been expecting them, and sort of invited them to come in, invited them to come in. The walls of the castle were lined floor to ceiling with perfectly organized books, categorized, neatly shelved. This was one of the few collections that had been neatly shelved. Alfred said, you know, you might want to see what's downstairs. And he took a big key ring off his belt and took a skeleton key and opened the door to the basement and walked them downstairs. And there in the basement were eight huge boxes from the Allianz Israelite Universelle. These were centuries-old manuscripts, some of the very first printed Jewish books, a priceless collection of Jewish books which was sitting in the basement of this castle. And he said, and you might also want to see what's in this cupboard over here. And he pulled out a second key and opened up the cupboard and inside was the Rothschild collection of books. Again, the most valuable collection of Jewish books uh, uh, in, in the world, arguably. Early printed editions of many books, one-of-a-kind manuscripts, and, men, and many, many more. So these uh, hiding places were discovered around, around Europe, and the, the ones that were in the American and British sections were sent to the warehouse that Seymour Pomeranz visited in Offenbach. And they started to sort, under, under Pomeranz's leadership and then under the leadership of his successors, they started to sort through this material. When they knew where the material had come from and when there was still a there there to send it back to, if it was a national library or something like that or a community library, they could send it back. But what were they to do with all the unidentifiable material? Or what were they to do with the material that they could identify but whose owners had been killed? Or what do you do with 5,000 books from a community library that, uh, that was in a community with hundreds of Jews before the war and only a small handful survived, whereas the town right next to it had far more survivors, they just didn't have any surviving books. It became unclear what to do with these books. And for the Jewish people, believe it or not, it quickly became political. This was back in the time when there, political, when there were political conflicts between different groups of Jews. <laughs> Jews in the soon-to-be state of Israel were saying, we are the capital of the Jewish people. We have a fine university, Hebrew university. The Jews should come to the land of Israel. Jews in the United States started saying, well, we have the largest community of Jews in the world. Fine university libraries, not to mention the Library of Congress, the books should come here. And the survivors who decided to stay at home in Europe said that the books should remain where they were. And the poor United States Army was caught in the, in the crossfire between these groups of bickering Jews. Well, they did their best. They, they sent out whatever books they, they could to whatever identifiable owners uh, they could locate. But still, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of books left when the American occupation of Germany effectively came to an end in 1949. At that point, they turned the books over to a group of historians who were able to get the rights to these books. It was, uh, the group of historians was led by Celo Baron, a leading Jewish studies professor at Columbia University. He was known as the Dean of American Jewish Studies, a Dean of Jewish Studies in America. He had this worldwide team of librarians and scholars who were given guardianship 
over these books on behalf of the Jewish people. The on-the-ground director, for a couple of years at least, in Germany, I don't know why I point the remote there. Uh, in Ger Germany, the on-the-ground director was the famous political philosopher Hannah Arendt. This chapter of her life uh, barely mentions, uh, a, barely made a blip in uh, the biographies that have been written of her, but it turns out she was on the ground dealing with these looted materials for a couple of years. And the bickering continued. Hannah Arendt and, uh, and others located more materials. The Germans were supposed to fork up, fork over the, uh, turn over the materials that they had looted. Often they were reluctant to do so. Hannah Arendt and her colleagues got some, some more of these materials. And eventually they came up with the formula for the unidentifiable materials. Again, the identifiable materials, if, if there was somebody to claim them, were given to their original owners. But for the airless materials, they came up with a formula, a 40-40-20 formula. 40% 40 of the airless materials went to libraries in the United States. 40%, the second 40% went to libraries in Israel. And the other 20% went to libraries elsewhere. This organization was called Jewish Cultural Reconstruction Incorporated. And they continued their work well into the 1950s, and they existed at least on paper until 1977, when Salo Barone, now an aging scholar, finally closed up shop, realizing that most of the material had been dealt with. It is easy to get lost in the numbers of these books. How many books were looted? Tens of millions. They're all over the place now. They're in libraries and in collections. Uh, I, I found, I well, was in Israel a year ago. I was in a bookstore. I found uh, uh, some of this looted material there as well. It's all over the place. But let's focus on one book and look at its story through, through and look at its uh, biography, its bibliobiography, if you Let's take a book, let's go back to the 10th century, to the 11th century, absolutely, and we meet a man there named Isaac Alfasi. Isaac Alfasi was a rabbi uh, uh, who lived in Fez, Morocco, the namesake place of the silly-looking tasseled cap. I guess it wasn't always silly-looking, but now, now sometimes it is. Um, uh, Isaac Alfasi, his name means Isaac, the guy from Fez. He was a... Uh, he, was, he was living at a time in which if you wanted to study Judaism, there were only two books you could study. One was the Torah, obviously, and the other was the Talmud. And the Talmud was a very difficult book to study. And he was being, becoming concerned because if to students who came eager to learn about Judaism, all he could offer them were the Bible, which everybody kind of knew. But then after that, all he had left was the Talmud, of, again, a very difficult book. And Islam at the time was exerting an, an increasingly tempting allure to Jews. And he was afraid that Jews, partially due to the dearth of, of, of studyable materials, were going to start to jump ship and, and, and be, become Muslim. So what, what did he do? He went through the Talmud which ordinarily is about a 20-volume set that sits on a shelf, and he, he, he condensed it down into a very practical three-volume Reader's Digest version 
of this long, ponderous text. He threw out all the stuff about sacrifices that were just theoretical because they, they, the temple wasn't standing and there was no place to offer sacrifices. He threw out all the stuff about uh, the back and forth between the rabbis, these arguing rabbis. Who needs to read about arguing rabbis? He just kept the material that Jews needed to know in order to lead their day-to-day -day lives as a Jew. You got a chicken you want to serve for dinner with a certain kind of blemish on it, you need to know if it's kosher. That's the kind of stuff he, he kept. Three, vol three volumes worth. Uh, it caught on like wildfire. And it was particularly popular during times when the printing and the dissemination of the Talmud was prohibited in Europe because Alfasi technically wasn't Talmud. So there were times when Jews couldn't get a hold of the Talmud, but they could get hold of Alfasi. It was one of the very first printed books, printed Jewish books in history. There was a, um, a, a Jewish printing began in about 1480, and there was an edition of Alfasi published in those early years in Spain. And as you may know, Jews got kicked out of Spain in 1492. So it was just right at the end of, of Spanish Jewry when it was first printed. It was printed in Italy in several places, in, in Istanbul or Constantinople. Um, it was printed in a few other places. The 10th place it was printed was a, a, a town in Germany called Sulzbach. And now we're in the mid-1700s, in the 1760s. And a printing, a Jewish printing house in Sulzbach released the three volumes of what's called Hilchot Alfasi, the laws of Alfasi. Sub, uh, they released the three volumes in three consecutive years, 1763, 1764, 1765. So let's arbitrarily take the second uh, year, volume of that of, of that release, of the second volume of Kilkot Alfasi, and we can ima imagine these big black tomes rolling off the press and being uh, lo loaded up into the back, and into crates and on the back of wagons by a bunch of burly guys who worked at the, pub pub at the publishing uh, house. The, uh, the wagons the next day rolled out of town. Most of them rolled eastward because most of the people who read this stuff lived in Eastern Europe. Eastern European communities couldn't afford the fancy printing requirements for these kinds of books, so they were mostly printed in Western Europe. So we, we, we hone in on one of those wagons heading into Eastern Europe. They get to a little shtetl somewhere in Poland or Lithuania where the boxes are unloaded. And the next day, a book distributor comes and takes one of the, those boxes, as well as many other books, and puts it into his wagon and begins his daily rounds. And he, and he goes to the shtetl's Beit Midrash, the, the, the house of study, the adult study house in the shtetl, where he's warmly greeted by the rab, rabbi. He sells the rabbi a selection of books, including our second volume of the laws of Alfasi. The rabbi puts it on the shelf. The next day, a bunch of eager students come into the Beit Midrash, and, and they break up into chevrusa, into, into study partners, to study that day's lessons. In one of these chevrusas, a question comes up, and they realize that Alfasi might be able to help them in their studies. So this pair of students goes to the shelf, they pull off our volume of Alfasi, they open it up, the binding crackles with this new book, and they consult Alfasi, and when they're done with the book, they put it back on the shelf. The next day, a similar thing happens with the second pair of students. And similarly, students week after week, month after month, year after year, go back to the same volume of Alfasi and study it. The book sits on the shelf of that Beit Midrash for almost 200 years, with generation 
after generation after generation of students coming to plumb the depths of its wisdom for uh, the, de the, the depths of its content for wisdom. Finally, one day in the 1940s, the door to that Beit Midrash does not open in the morning because all the students, as well as everybody else in that town, has just been taken out into the woods and shot. The following day, the door does open once again, and instead of eager young students, instead of them entering, the darkness comes in instead as a group of Nazi thugs comes in and grabs our volume of, of Hilchot Alfasi, of the Laws of Alfasi, along with all the other books, and throws it in, in the back of a truck, taking it to a nearby castle for storage. As the war went on, the books that had been taken from that date in Midrash eventually made their way to, Hung, to Hungen or to Radibor, where they stayed until the end of the, the war and were discovered by, uh, by a group of American sol sol soldiers who were coming in to, uh, to, to patrol the newly reconquered, or the, the for, formerly Nazi territory that they had just reconquered. They, they found our volume of Alfasi, they found countless other books, they loaded them into trucks and sent them to Offenbach, to the Offenbach Archival Depot, where the, the, the staff of the Offenbach Archival Depot came upon our volume of Alfasi. They opened it up to the title page and they saw that the original stamp from the Beit Midrash marking it as part of that particular Beit Midrash's uh, library had, had faded over the years and they couldn't identify who had owned the book before the war. So it went into this vast pile of airless Jewish books that had been looted by the Nazis. Eventually, the army turned the book over to Jewish cultural reconstruction and Jewish cultural reconstruction put it into its 40-40-20 formula. And this book, our volume of Alfasi, ended up going to Israel where it was taken in by the library of the chief rabbinate of the state of Israel. And it remained in the chief rabbinate's shelves for uh, a few more decades until such time as the rabbinate needed to clear some shelf space. And so they took our volume of Alfasi and they sold it to an antiquarian book dealer who put it up on the, on, on the market. So here you have a book that was, was based on ancient words of Talmud written in antiquity. Uh, it was written down into book form in the 11th century by Alfasi, printed uh, in the 1760s in Germ Germany, used probably somewhere in Eastern Europe, sent back to Germany, sent to Israel, and now this antiquarian dealer put, puts it on the market. It was purchased by a customer in the United States and... Here it is. I purchased this book um, the way that rabbis uh, have historically pur purchased books of Jewish wisdom on eBay. And um, <laughs> when I opened it up, I went to the, the title page, and it says, I, if I had a third hand, I'd point out w w w what I'm reading here. Just take my word for it. Hilchot Rab Alfas, the laws of Rabbi Alfas. It was printed in Zulzbach. It gives the date here. You see some purple stamps here on the title page and throughout the book from the library of the chief rabbinate of Israel. Here you have the stamp from the original owner of the book that has been faded, faded beyond recognition. 
I went through catalogs of these stamps uh, and was unable to identify where it's from, so we don't know where it was used. And then on the inside front cover, I saw a book plate uh, labeling, it, uh, labeling it Jewish Cultural Reconstruction. I hadn't ever heard of Jewish Cultural Reconstruction at the time, so I did what rabbis do when faced with such conundra, Googled it, and uh, this put me on the, um, on, on, on the track of this story of the looted books of the, whole, the, the Holocaust. I, um, I guess, legally speaking, I own the book. I consider myself its custodian. I don't know where it's going to go uh, after I have it. I sometimes wonder what, uh, who the last students in Europe were to study out of this book and whether its wisdom might have given them at least a modicum of comfort or guidance in their, their, fi their, fi fi their final days. Um, remember, I said that, uh, that uh, Abraham Sutzkever in Vilna wrote some, uh, some poetry during his breaks in the, where in the warehouse in the Yivo library. In one of them, he used the image of, uh, he, he compared the written word to burnt pearls, the burnt pearls on the charred remains of a woman's body. We don't have the woman anymore. So all we have are the pearls. The pearls themselves are burnt, but they're the last treasures we have of her. And that's what the books are like as well. Here's what Sutskova wrote. He lived until 2010, as I said. He wrote, it is not just because my words quiver like broken hands grasping for aid, or that they sharpen themselves like teeth on the prowl in darkness, that you, my written word, substitute for my world, flare up the coals of my anger. It is because your sounds glint like burnt pearls discovered in an extinguished pyre, and no one, not even I, shredded by time, can recognize the woman drenched in flame for all that remains of her now are those gray pearls smoldering in the ash. If only we had the people, people we memorialize today with our fellow Jews all over the world. Sadly, we don't. This is among the only physical remains connecting us to them and their civilization. But with your help, with all of our help, we can open the books once again study their wisdom, and allow it to shine forth anew. Thank you very much. Do we, do we have some time for questions? So we're going to have a Please come up for a photo. We'll get a photo with Rabbi Clayton and the book. And then we'll be selling the bookstore. And you can be selling Rabbi Clayton's book, Soul and Words. If you buy it today, you can come by and have it signed by him. So let's do a few questions. Quick. Photo and then book. So if you have a question, please raise your hand. The date, the date of that book. Did you tell us the date? 1764. Okay, so uh, question means a quick question with a question mark. Let's keep it brief. You want to get to as many as you can in the next few minutes. 
and negative administration. So if I were to find a suit you said correctly about Tonga and Shores, it sounded like it was actually given to the state of Israel and taken by the chief rabbi and then be sold it. In my mind, you wouldn't have a right to sell that property. That book should belong to Israel. So I'm questioning why isn't it there? Why is it going back to Israel? Are you going to try to take the book away from me? I... <laughs> good, no, it's a good question. We, I, and that's part of the bigger question of why, you know, where are these things today and why aren't people saying, look at this. I mean, you can go to the libraries, uh, Judaic li libraries, and pull books off the shelves and find the J JCR book plate in them. These books are all over the place. I told you, I found one laying in a bookstore in Jerusalem. Um, and they, they, they came at, you know, they came at a time, we, so I think the broader question is, why don't we treasure these more than we, than we, we do? Um, and I, I asked that question to librarians, and they said, look, it came at a, at a time when there was just so much chaos going on in the world, they took these big crates of book, books in, um, and, um, uh, and they, uh, they just became part of the, the regular collection. So, we look at this book with an almost mystical appreciation for what it represents, but, but a lot of people don't. And to the, to the librarians of the chief rabbinate of Israel, this was just an old book that wasn't worth a whole lot of money that was on their shelves and they needed some more shelf space. So just people respond to these books differently. Uh, in fact, uh, I recently wrote a book called Yes. I recommend you read it. You will learn about Well, I, I showed you the, uh, the, the beautiful cover page. There are several tractates of Talmud represented here. Each one's supposed to have their own cover page. And it wasn't until a couple years ago that I realized that somebody had gone through the book and cut out all the other cover pages, probably to sell it as art. And that's probably why I was able to afford it. Uh, I, it didn't cost, I, I'll tell you, I think it probably cost $100 or so. It wasn't all that much. You could go on eBay, or at least you could until recently, if somebody was asking me about these books and a bunch of them got bought up. But up until re recently, there were some books with JCR stamps in it and other Nazi stamps from the, the looting organizations that were, being, they were selling for $20 or so on, e e on eBay. So these things are widely available because remember, there were so very many of them. I had a box custom made for this book. The box cost more than the book itself. Thank you. Um, question. After the fall of the Soviet Union in 1989, um, and, uh, were any other Jewish books found? Uh, oh, the books that were in the Soviet zone of Germany after the war, which eventually became more or less East Germany, sort of melted away into a lot of the Soviet collections. One of the, the exceptions to that is the, um, the library that belonged to the uh, not the most recent Lubavitcher Rebbe, I believe it was his predecessor, right? And his library is in Mo is in Mo Moscow now, and is in a state library in Moscow, available uh, for everybody to consult. Chabad was trying to get th those books back and was not very successful, but m but a, a vast majority of the books in Eastern 
Europe were not restituted, and they kind of melted away into the collections of the former Soviet Union where they remain today. Okay, we'll do about two more questions. Rabbi, Rabbi. Hold on. He's the boss. Sorry, I can Yeah, not too many. The, the print runs at the time, I'm told, were typically around 1,000. Uh, and many of them, we presume, didn't survive the, the, the war. So there are, you know, a handful of these around still. I, I don't know the answer to, to that. Uh, complete versions of this printing, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, three volumes from Salzbach. I'm, I'm just not, I'm not sure. I haven't come across any. I'm, I'm not sure. Rabbi, you mentioned the word Torah once. What is the history of our Torah? You have history on it. I'm not sure I understand your question. History on the Torah. On ancient. Well, the the Torah itself, if you believe the Bible, goes back to Mount Sinai. Um, and uh, um, there, there were Torah scrolls that were looted during the war as well. There was a room just for the Torah scrolls in Offenbach. Um, and so they, so each of these scrolls have their own, their own history. Wow. Oh wow! What a, what a what a treasure! And um, it was written for people coming from Spain and Portugal, Morocco, so they could um, work in the trades. So there are pages of, um, of words for carpenters, pages of words for farmers, and so on. And this was acquired by my father in the early 1900s, actually in, I think, a people library. But um, eventually it made its way through libraries in New York. I have this book now. It's sitting on the shelf. I don't know what to do with it, so I'm asking you if you want that book. I'm honored to, to be, you know, I, don't ever ask me if I want a book. <laughs> Um, uh, you can also don't. I mean, I, I would be flattered to take it, but you can also. There are libraries around the world who can give really uh, proper care to a book like that. But let's talk after, a, afterwards, and we. Can, uh, okay, let's talk after. Thank, thank you so much. I, uh, I'm touched. I want to go someplace where it'll be Thank you. Thank you. So with that, let us thank Rabbi Flickin for the great presentation.